Welcome to the Veterinary Startup Practice Podcast with attorney Rob Montgomery, where Rob and his veterinary industry guests seek to demystify the process of starting up a veterinary practice. Since Rob is a lawyer, we need to tell you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be considered legal advice. Listening to this podcast does not and will not create an attorney-client relationship. As is always the case, you should formally consult with legal counsel before proceeding with any legal matter. And now, here's Rob Montgomery. Hello, everyone. I'm Rob Montgomery, and welcome to the Veterinary Startup Practice Podcast, where, as we like to say, we are seeking to demystify the process of starting a vet practice by bringing in experts, thought leaders from the veterinary world to talk about the startup process, what to do, and sometimes even more importantly, what not to do. So I am excited uh, for today's guest. Uh, he is one of our local guys here, uh, Peter McCann, who is a, a realtor in the uh, Philadelphia, southeastern Pennsylvania region and to, to Delaware, uh, New Jersey, and other surrounding parts of this area who we've done a bunch of deals with. And uh, Pete works with Car Healthcare uh, Realty and helps navigate vets through the process of starting and expanding their practices. He helps vets who are looking to lease spaces. He helps with the purchase of real estate. Uh, he works with one-doc startups to specialty groups, multi-location franchises, all the way up to large corporate-owned practices. He only works with tenants and buyers, which allows him to provide services at no cost to his clients. And in turn, he becomes the doctor of the group's trusted ally from the beginning to the end. And Pete strives to be the very first call when the idea of a new practice or a new additional location first occurs. And Pete's also an attorney, which is maybe why I like him especially, uh, and a longtime uh, business law and real estate law professor. And I think Pete really brings his legal and teaching experience to guide vets through some of the most challenging parts of the process and negotiating the terms of their lease and purchase, navigating the nuances of zoning, which we're going to talk a little bit about today, renegotiating terms for practices that are captive to expiring leases, and really helping their his clients to understand the, the lease process and the real estate process and to really strategize how to help them put themselves in the best position to succeed. And so without further ado, thanks for being on the show today, Pete. Thanks, Rob. Great to be here. That yeah. intro was uh, incredible. Who wrote that? <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but it's all true and it's good stuff, you know, and I and, you know, truly, I think that the level of professionalism that you bring and the expertise and the attention to detail, okay, I'm going to be a little biased here, is something that your legal profession really helps, I think, to, to serve your clients. So sure. uh, we always love working on deals with you and um, do a great job for your clients. And so we're really I'm excited to have you uh, have you on the show and you are one of our uh, our live, uh, in-person, uh, backyard Philly guys. So, uh, right. it's awesome for us and it's great to have you in person here in the studio. So, uh, you know, we've had some other guests on the show and, uh, we've talked about different aspects of things. And so today, Pete, I want to talk a little bit about, let's kick it off with, you know, what I consider to be the sort of the all important question, which so many people ask, me and I'm sure even more ask you, should I lease or should I purchase a yeah, space? This is it, right? This is always where we start. And uh, there's a lot of elements to it, but the you know from from the big picture, it's I always start with leasing space is checkers, purchasing space is chess. And we can talk about the financing and how that plays into this. But if you are starting a veterinary practice, there are a lot of decisions that need to be made in terms of staff, equipment, budgets, you know, all of those things that many of my vets are doing for the first time. And there's an opportunity if you're leasing space to, to create something that will not only be fulfilling, but also very valuable. At the end of the day, with the lease, you don't own that property, of course, right? Mm -hmm, so right. If, if you're purchasing and you're starting a practice, it's the same, all the same decisions in terms of your staff, your budgets, your, your equipment, uh, developing and building the trajectory of, of, of that practice. 
In addition, you have all of the opportunities as well as risks and expenses that come with owning real estate, right? So what happens if, you know, you get a bad storm, the roof falls in, uh, you know, over time, the value of your practice uh, can increase and you, you might own real estate that is stagnant or doesn't increase at the value, you know, at the rate that you want. But it's, it's two different risks, right? Mm-hmm. How do you build the practice and what's going to happen with the value of that real estate? Whereas with the lease, it's just, it's just one risk, building your practice. And so I say checkers and chess uh, because it's, it's harder to uh, you know, calculate you know, what your odds are uh, of success will be. Uh, but if you, you play things the right way with the purchase, uh, it can be a, a double win situation. Right. I guess I feel like, too, like along those lines that I like to when clients have an open mind, you know, like, you know, I want to own a practice. I want to do a startup, whether it's purchase or lease from a real estate standpoint. I feel like it's important to really kind of see what your options are. Right. You know, like and I, I feel like a lot of times you'll see that. Uh, people will make concessions to own the real estate where they may not be, we're going to talk about demographics next, but they may not, they may be sacrificing good demographics or an ideal setup to, in order to own the real estate. And I kind of feel like that's a mistake. And to me, I, my thought with that is, Hey, you know, put yourself in the place where you can make the most money. Sure. You know, with your practice, which is what exactly you said, like, because the, there's no guarantee with the real estate. Like, nope. you know, we've we've been fortunate in this country, you know, as real estate owners and investors that, you know, things have continued to increase over the last however many, you know, 10 plus years. Like, things have been good. And I think sometimes people get like, kind of roped into that mentality, like, well, it's always going to get better and better and better. Sure, and sure. there are no guarantees with that. Nope. And, and the opportunity, being a vet, building a vet practice you know, that independent of the real estate has the opportunity to be incredibly valuable in and of itself, whether you're going to borrow against that or sell that or bring on partners. Uh, there's not necessarily a need to overcomplicate what it is that you're, you're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So, and the other aspect of that is you have to keep in mind the lenders, right? You know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, yeah, but yeah. the, they're going to have a major say in terms of uh, how you go about getting your practice off the ground. And there's a reason why lenders uh, will push you in the direction of a lease. And you would think, okay, if they're, they're going to be investing into my, my practice, into my business, wouldn't they want me to own the real estate so that they have some you know, tangible asset to, to, that I'd be borrowing against? Mm-hmm. And there's some truth to that, but in in... In practicality, the bank knows this is the first time running a business. This is your first time running a practice. And if you are leasing that space, all of the risks that are associated with with the real estate get put onto the landlord. So two hats instead of three, Mm. and it makes things uh, a lot smoother. You can focus on on building your business, you know, uh, managing your practice. And in time, if you want to expand or purchase another practice, there's all kinds of different ways that you you can you can go about that process, and the lenders will be there at that point to help you buy if you prefer. But uh, you should always keep in mind that banks aren't in the business of losing money, and if you're starting a practice and and they're pushing you towards leasing, there's probably a reason why. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, that's a great point, and I think people really underestimate that. You know, I think that there's a sort of misconception that I see a lot of times with with clients where they think like, well, you know, if I uh, if I own this, like somehow it's free, you know, or like I'm paying myself. But like, it's not. You still have to borrow the money. You're still paying interest. You still have all the maintenance. You still have all this other aggravation that goes on top of it. And my understanding and my observation, like a lot of the big corporate groups don't own the real estate, right, Pete? A lot of them don't. Yeah. And, you know? and, 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 I, and a lot of them won't actually consider practices uh, that are put on the market for acquisition if they own the real estate. They, they explicitly don't want them. Now, now, all kinds of different consolidators and private equity groups out there have different philosophies sure. and see different opportunities. 
but you, you don't see any that will say we only are going after practices that own the real estate, but you will see some that, that say the opposite. We only want practices that are leasing their space. Right. I mean, because like for them, they have a bucket of money, pot of gold, so to speak. Yes. And if you say they have the option of buying real estate, putting it into the dirt, or buying practices, businesses that have income, they're going to spend it on something that's going to throw off income, right? And not that we all should always follow those corporate groups and do what they do, but like it makes sense to kind of pay attention to what they're doing because they there are oftentimes good business reasons to do that. Like that's 100%. what they do, yes. business, right? 100%. So if they're not doing it that way, maybe you scratch your head and say, well, why am I so insistent on doing it the opposite way of these people that have this successful playbook? You got it. And it, it's 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 vets tend to underestimate or or, or don't fully understand that it, it's it's their practice it's 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 their expertise it's their license that is the revenue generating machine behind right. any veterinary you know business and and so if the private equity groups or the consolidators want to buy you uh, and they see you as the value and not the real estate pay attention to that yeah that's a great point great way to put it hey, Pete what are some misconceptions that you feel like veterinarians have about about startups? What things do they miss or not? You know, what things do you find yourself repeating over and over again that, that it's like, wow, you know, this is a common thread? Sure. So th there's quite a few misconceptions. I, I, I think the, you know, one of the things that I find myself talking uh, through over and over again is this is not as difficult as you think it is. Um, a lot of... You know, so the vets will come, they'll have an idea, they, they don't like working for their new uh, corporate overlord as they might see it, or, like that. Uh, you know, maybe they lost their, the, their, the best uh, practice manager. We see all kinds of things, you know, some quickly, some slowly will uh, influence a doctor to consider uh, starting their own practice. And when they think about that. They say, I have no idea how to do this. I didn't learn how to do this in veterinary school. Um, and so they start to ask other vets who may maybe have gone about the process. And uh, oftentimes I'll hear uh, that they had considered this several times along the way, but they gave up because they, they didn't think that they had the bandwidth to put together the team and figure out all the elements that, that go into, you know, starting a practice. It, right. it is a lot to consider and there are a lot of decisions to be made they are right in that respect but what they don't understand is that this is a well-trodden path and you can only move one step at a time and if you do things uh, in the right order uh, use the right lenders use the right attorneys you know right use all the people that are are in this network that, that have been helping other practices get up and running it's just a matter of, of following the script. There'll be plenty of opportunities along the way to make decisions about design and, you know, logos and, you know, how many do you hire a practice manager? Do you do it yourself? There, there's all kinds of ways to personalize it, but you don't have to make all those decisions at once. And if you just start walking down the path, start with me, hopefully start with the lenders. Uh, you know, st start with uh, some of the trusted consultants, whoever it is that's going to be your team. Start with the right people and, you know, make sure that you get guidance not only on the decisions that need to be made, but make sure that you fully understand the order that they go in. And if you follow that, it, it, it's hard to get it, it's hard to really mess this up. Yeah. Um, so it, it is complicated, but it's a well understood path. And I think what you said, you said the team, and I think it's important for people to to realize and understand, and a few of our guests have talked about this, you don't have to do this by yourself. This is not a startup where a DIY startup, nobody says that when you do a startup, you have to be the lone wolf here. Uh, you know, And so you know, there are teams of people that have this expertise and specialization that can help you with these different uh, different steps along the process you know, sure. with 
you know, your main consultants. And, and in some deals, there's a consultant involved. A lot of times you're the one that's running point, Pete, in, yep. in these deals and really helping organize things. You're telling them the order that they need to, to do things in, when they need to be talking to contractors, when they need to be talking to an insurance rep, when they need to be talking to a lawyer, uh, when they need to be talking to the equipment supplier. You know, sure. like, this is, you know, and then those people are able to help them with those different aspects. But like, I think I see a lot of times that people just get hung up on like, well, I don't know how to do this. Well, you don't have to. You, know? right. you just have to have a desire to want to do it. And the ability to take advice and do things the right way. And I think this is important. We talk about this in a lot of different contexts in our practice because we help people that are transitioning into practice ownership through acquisition, through buy-in, through startup. We help people to sell too. But the thing with a, with a vet who is an owner-operator, uh, for the most part, most of them are going to do these once. These are one transactions, you know, like you get one crack at your startup, you get one crack at your acquisition. Nobody could be possibly expected to know how to do something they did the first time. Anything, I mean, we could sit here for the next 15 minutes and think of examples of the first time I did this, well, here's how it worked out. Not so well, right? But the next time it got better and the time after it was better. You don't have that luxury. So, uh, but... The good news is you don't have to do this yourself and you can work with people who have done it hundreds of times to help you with their specific aspect of things and guide you. And then, and then, you know, you don't, you're able to, to succeed. Sure. And, and, and that's a great point. Uh, these, uh, a lot of the people that, uh, can assist along the way are, you know, in, in, the doctor's day-to-day universe, right? So, you know, even if you have a relationship, you're an associate, there's an equipment supplier, distributor that comes in, whether it's, it's, it's them or it's you, it's an attorney, it's a, um, you know, it's a contractor, all of these different people that need to be involved in that process. They all want to, to make this work for you. And they're not going to put you in a position where they're, they're pressuring you to make decisions or sign on the dotted line. If, if, Eventually, there comes a point in all of this where we, uh, the doctor has to make a decision. This is going to be my real estate agent. This is going to be my attorney. But you have to keep in mind that we will, we all work together to help you to understand the order of operations. And you're not putting yourself at, at risk by just asking a couple of questions, asking for some guidance. It's not a high pressure sales uh situation. You know, again, I, I don't want to, we all have to earn our money and there mm-hmm. does have to come a point where we say, this is what we get paid. This is how we get paid. You know, what do you choose to work with us? But you'd be surprised with how many people involved in that process will give you some time, will answer sure. some questions and help mm-hmm. point you in the right direction. Well, it definitely shouldn't be a high pressure situation. If you feel like you think that's the case, then chances are you've got some problems with your team, you know, and Great I think point. that's a good thing too. And we've talked about this with some other folks, like, you know, the, When you're working with a team and you you have your trusted advisor that's really linking you up with the other people that their clients have worked with successfully, I mean, that's the best way to to vet professionals and figure out who you want to work with. You know, like you don't have to, nor should you just start Googling people and and, and assembling your team through like a free agent of like from the search engine, right? Like that's not, that's not good either. But you know, we all, we like to work together because we all like to see everything turn out successfully. You know, like we have a vested interest in in our clients, our mutual clients doing well, because that looks good for everybody involved. It's just like anything. Nobody, once you're working with a good team of trusted advisors who have good relationships, everybody wants to help everybody else, else's client out to make it to make this a positive thing because it's a reflection on on everybody involved. Great point. And um, so, you know, I think it's important, you know, don't, and you should also, shouldn't feel like, wow, you know, how do I find the equipment person? How do I find the realtor? How do I find the lawyer? Like you, you link into your trusted advisor and then just run down through their network of trusted people. That's great, yeah. You don't have to worry about it. We're, it's a spider web. We're all connected and, uh, you know, we're not gonna put you in a position where, you know, if the whole thing falls apart, I don't get paid. If the whole thing falls apart, you know, you might not get paid. So, so we also know, uh, you know, 
there is a vested interest financially on, on our side to make this work. And, you know, I'm very open about that. It's, uh, if, if I don't, if I'm putting you in touch with the wrong contractor and, and their, their bid is 50%, you know, more than, uh, 50% less than what that actual bill is going to be, you're not going to be able to pay that. So make sure that you're, you're, relying on the connections that that I can put you in touch with Rob can put you in touch with you know because we we're going to make sure that that you know this doesn't go off the rails yeah well even more importantly you know, you're not going to put them in touch with a contractor who can't get the job done so that the next time that you are the next vet that was working with you that's a friend of that vet says well yeah you know he put me in touch with that contractor who did a lousy job like that doesn't that doesn't work for any of us, for sure. True. Let's uh, kind of circle back. I started alluding to this when we were talking about the lease versus purchase. You know, I was talking about the fact that a lot of times I see that when people want to purchase real estate, when they're just really sort of that, that, that narrow focus, like I'm buying the real estate and that's it. I'm not going to consider a lease. I feel like, like I said, sometimes concessions are made and they, they compromise as to certain things. I think one of the things that I see, the biggest compromise that comes up in that setting, this is what I want to talk to you about next, is demographics. Like I, I feel like, you know, back to the lease purchase in this context, like you consider both and you go to the place where you can make the most money running your practice, right? And if that's a, a strip mall, then you know, chances are you're not going to be able to own that. You're going to have to be a tenant. But I feel like what should drive the decision as to where you're going to, to buy or lease or whether you buy or lease, to me, Pete, really starts with what are the best demographics for you to, to have a thriving practice. So if you can kind of talk about what are demographics in this, in this world, why they matter, and kind of what, give, give me demographics 101 for, for our listeners. Yeah, sure. So two things. One is I, we might have a little bit of a different philosophy on this. Okay. Uh, That's okay. You know, um, <laughs> demographics are important, right? So when I'm talking about demographics, what we're usually looking at is uh, some publicly available uh, average household income, uh, we want to identify uh, different, there's a few different metrics that help us get a good idea of the number of, of pets that might be owned in a certain area. Um, we want to, do people have pets? How close are they? Can they pay for your services? This is kind of the general These are all good thought. things for right. somebody you right? Know. that's doing a startup practice, right? Sure. So, um those are key. The, 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 the demographic information that I'm more concerned about is, is the competition. That's not necessarily demographics, but it, it is data that is relevant to determining you know, where the opportunities are. In my world, I kind of throw that in. So for me, demographics concludes competition. Sure. Yeah. And competition is interesting because uh, you can look on Google Maps, see how many practices might near, be nearby, and are they one mile away, three miles, five miles? There, you know, there are some different distance metrics that we need to be aware of, but they don't always tell the, the picture. You have to really dive in and see how many doctors work these practices, mm -hmm. how long have they been there, are they specialists, is this also an urgent care uh, you have to get a real clear picture of, of the size, the success, and the number of doctors that are at these, these practices. You don't want to move next door to one of these thriving practices. If they are independently owned, that is especially true, right? If they've recently been a, uh, acquired by uh, corporate, that doesn't mean that they won't continue to be successful. I, I know that a lot of our listeners are going to hear that and go, yeah, you know, right, right. But but not all. Um, they're 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 here. Uh, they're a, you know part of our world. Uh, but they do change the the vibe of of the practice uh, in a million different ways. And, and so you you want to evaluate a a a corporate owned practice different than you would a a individual or privately owned practice. We can get into details of that, but. I wanted to take a step back regarding demographics and competition, and that is to understand there's a veterinarian shortage that is, exists right now. Mm -hmm. the, the best estimates as to when that might begin uh, to uh, resolve is 2030. 
Those estimates were, wow. were, were made prior to 2020. So obviously we saw a, a huge yeah. number of pets that were adopted. Now we are seeing a, a rush to create some uh, credentialed veterinary schools, but by the time they get their credentials and hire their staff and, yeah, and have their first class is four, five, six years. Yeah. Then it's four years. Mm-hmm. So, so we're not going to see any resolution on that, even if, 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 if the rules are relaxed with international vets and there's some, uh, there's some things going on right now to make that a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. But by and large, the demographics and competition are important to consider, but don't let that fool you from the fact that, that there's just a tremendous opportunity and need for your services. And uh, I, I've had docs get lost in, you know, trying to pinpoint the exact location, and that can take, you know, six, nine, 12 months. And if that's where your heart is set on being, that's where your heart is set on being, you know, at, at the end of the day, you have your, your justifications. But that's a year of revenue that you lost. Sure, absolutely. So uh, I like to talk about demographics and competition, but always within the context of, look, your services are, are needed. Mm-hmm. You can get 100% financing from the lenders. A CPA can't get that to start their business. A lawyer can't get that to start their business. Not even most physicians. It, yeah. It's dentists and, and vets. Yeah. So take advantage of that, that opportunity. Understand why that is an opportunity. Right. And use the data to push you one direction or another, but but it's, it's one of about six or seven deciding factors, and I don't like that to be the initial, you know, point of evaluating the properties. Great. Well, look, it's just like anything, analysis, paralysis, right? You know, or paralysis by analysis, whatever the expression is, right? You can't, ultimately, you want to, to look at data to try to inform yourself as to where it's good to be or not be, or where you can be optimal, but not to the point where you you stymie your 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 forward progress with uh, with a project for sure. Correct. And, and to your point, I mean, we see that too a lot. With you know, it's the cost of not doing a deal. It's the time that it takes, and for especially, I find like in the vet world, more so than even other uh, healthcare uh, industries is like just the disparity between the associate income and the owner income. And the longer you sort of keep yourself at that associate income and you're not making that step to ownership, there's a significant cost associated with that. And it's a snowballing thing, too, because it's like the sooner you start, the more it is, and the bigger it gets, and it grows and it grows. And the longer you wait to start that snowball, you know, it it is there is a a price that's associated with that, a negative price. Sure, sure. And, and, And vets in particular tend to develop relationships with their uh, patients' owners, right, with their clients, and and not that a dentist or a physician doesn't, they they do, but it 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 actually seems, from my perspective, to in in many ways be a stronger bond, a, a, a stronger gravity uh, that keeps vets in practices that that even if they're getting paid okay and it, it's not it's a job that they like well enough, they won't truly open their eyes up to to practice ownership as early as they should because of that, that, you know, connection that they have, you know, with so many people in the neighborhood. Yeah. Right. And that's meaningful. And let me just kind of use this opportunity just to reiterate what you know, I've said a few times, uh, on other episodes too. be really careful about the associate agreements you sign and the the covenants not to compete contained in them. Correct. You know, there's uh, different states are starting to, there's a trend to sort of scale back the permissibility of those restrictive covenants. Uh, so it really is a state-by-state issue. The federal government is talking about banning covenants not to compete. Remains to be seen whether that's going to happen. I'm going to take the under on that one, Pete. You and I can have a legal <laughs> debate about oh, that. You think the FTC might be slow to move? Oh, geez. Or, you know, is it even constitutional? And why is the FTC telling people what the law is and, you know, where there's already state law? You know, but yes, you and I can have our <laughs> legal debate on that. But at the end of the day, just 
be really careful about about signing these things because you know while you know you know you were talking about demographics not being the, the the main focus or shouldn't be you know what's even worse than that is that if you're signing a 20 or 30 mile non-compete and sometimes maybe measured around multiple practices you are really excluding yourself from sometimes hundreds or thousands of square miles where you're able to practice. So uh, I, I would say, you know, you've, you've spent so much time and money to get your education, to get licensed, to be able to practice the profession. Do not willy-nilly give it up by signing some, some non-compete that force you to relocate, sell your house, move if you want to change jobs or own a practice. And and from a planning standpoint, whether or not you know that you want to be an owner someday, you know, leave your options open and just be really careful about these things. Yep, exactly right. Be careful. You know, I've, I've had a situation where a doctor uh, was working for a small practice, three or four docs, acquired by corporate. They continued on in their role. But they were asked to do relief shifts at different yeah. locations around the state. See, I know and, where you're going. <laughs> and the whole point, from my perspective, of, of asking them to take those relief shifts was to expand their mm. non-compete radius because wow. it could be measured from each. <laughs> now, I don't think, you know, corporate gets a bad rap and, and for a lot of reasons from a lot of people. You know, I, I'm not, I don't work there. I don't, you know, I don't see it day to day. I don't know how, you know, they're all different. Um, and, you know, so I don't like to wade too far into those waters, but uh, you do have to be aware of the reputation of the corporate entity that may have acquired your practice and make sure that you um, are not putting yourself in a position, know their reputation and make sure you take a look at if you have been acquired that's always a good point to, to send your contract over to an attorney and yeah, say, absolutely. you know, what, you know, what are my options here and when are my options? And, and the other thing you mentioned about the non-competes is if you're going to be putting together a team of two or more docs to start your practice, this is a limiting factor. Yep. So if, if your non-compete expires in a year and theirs is in two years, it's going to be difficult to bring them on as, as a co-partner from, from the beginning. So, uh, you have to go through, uh, all the analysis of, of, can I work with this person? You know, do, do we mm -hmm. complement each other? All, all the things that you would normally need to do. But in addition to that, you both need to show each other your employment contracts mm -hmm. and, and make sure that, uh, you're on the same timeline. Yeah. And, 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 and for a number of reasons, I mean, first off, most banks won't even lend, to do the startup or to acquire a practice in the area that's restricted. And I, I think a lot of a popular misconception is, oh, these things are, somebody told me they aren't enforceable. Well, two lawyers in the room, we know how you determine whether or not something is enforceable. That's a judge says whether or not it's enforceable. And to get to that point means there was a lawsuit filed, an answer filed, depositions taken, motions, hearings, injunctions. It is a very long and expensive process. So anybody that tells you don't worry about it, that's not enforceable. I mean, you need to have probably a, a war chest of at least six figures uh, sitting around wow. ready to throw at a lawyer to find out whether or not it's quote unquote unenforceable. It's an expense that nobody should uh, should have to pay. And, and most people can't afford. And you know, and and frankly, Pete, as we see in our world, you know, in the legal world, um, usually in litigation, the party with the most money wins. Right, right. So, you know, if, if young associate thinks they're going to go up against a big national corporation to try to beat them on their non-compete, good luck. Yep. No, that's, you're exactly right. It's not whether you're, you're in the right, it's whether they can, you know, do they, is it unclear enough that they can drag you into court? Cause yeah. they drag you into court. Now it's a year, 18 months and that's the whole non-compete time anyway. So no good. just. Yeah. You know, be careful. Be careful. <laughs> yeah. Be careful. Yeah. Uh, let's shift gears a little. Um, sticking in the legal stuff, though, still quasi-legal. Um, let's talk to our listeners, Pete, about zoning issues and sort of concerns that are really specific to VAT. Like we, again, help other healthcare professionals. But when it comes to zoning issues, uh, there are always additional wrinkles 
when it comes to uh, an animal hospital or a vet practice. Hundred percent. No, this is this is a true. Um, it can be a it can be a real nightmare for some of these vets that don't put enough attention on fully understanding how zoning, how the local uh, officials in general uh, can impact the trajectory of you know getting their practice up and running, the delays, the costs, and and ultimately. Uh, people that you might not have ever thought about in your community have a lot of control over, you know, what you can and can't do. Now there's the zoning code, of course, which is, you know, the rules, but the other challenge is it's not just what the rules are. It just like we were talking about with the non-competes a minute ago, the zoning code is the rules, but the zoning officer or the, the local board interpret those rules. Right. And so you need to make sure that you are going, you're taking space, whether you're leasing or purchasing, where veterinary use is, is a either a by right use or you have a zoning confirmation from the town that indicates that your use is acceptable in that, you know, at that property. In addition to zoning. Let me stop you there for a second. Sure. Let's just back that off. When you say it has to be a by right or you have to have the assurance that you could do it, I mean, this connect the dots here for our listeners because sometimes I think people this is not intuitive they don't sure. realize this if it's not that means that you can't operate a vet practice there right you can't open for business you can't get construction permits like it's you- actually worse because the answer it's not that you can't go there oftentimes the answer is it's unclear if you can go there yeah which is always bad right so then you have to go through you you have the hope uh, and you hire attorneys and you have that you go through the process of determining, you know, whether you can go, whether you can go there. Sometimes that process will relieve itself in two months. Sometimes it's 10 months and there's no guarantee that you're ultimately going to get the answer that you want. And so. And meanwhile, you've signed a lease. The landlord, they don't, they don't care. They you don't can't care. go back to the landlord and say, oh, gee, sorry, I didn't realize I couldn't have a vet practice here. Yeah, no, it's and and you know, oftentimes you'll you'll it's it's a question that a lot of vets wouldn't even necessarily think to ask, and consultants might not even think to ask. Mm-hmm. You know, unless you're working with a specialist who's who's seen all the ways that this has gone wrong for, for veterinary practices, this can be the the biggest obstacle, uh, the biggest unseen obstacle. Not only is there is there zoning, you got to make sure that. You know, you're complying with the zoning code, but you also need to get a good idea of who is approving the building permits in that town. Mm-hmm. Because if 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 they're party X and the the local zoning board is party Y, and they have gone to war with each other over uh, issues that have nothing to do with you, hmm. you can find yourself in a position where you're getting your zoning approval, no problem. You you. You know, you hire your team, you sign your lease, uh, you, you're you're signing uh, employment contracts, doing all of these things, and then you submit your permits to be approved for construction, only to find out they're not approved. Yeah, and so it's you you it it's it sounds trivial, but you have to get a very clear idea of not only what the zoning regulations are, how they will be interpreted, but you also need to know how the the, the building uh, enforcement officer, how they feel about your use, because if the zoning is approved and you can't get any of your permits approved, you can't go there. So well, it's a that's, two-step process. Yeah, that's a great point. And even, you know, when you talk about even the best case scenario, say you go through the process and you, you succeed and you get the, the, uh, the, uh, the approval or you get the permits, but you know, chances are you've already done a great job negotiating some free rent period for whatever, four, six months to allow the build out or three, whatever, you know, generally for the build out to occur where the, where the tenant, your client is not paying rent. Well, if you have to spend all that time 
haggling with the zoning people to even get the permission to start construction, you've just burned through all that free rent period that you wanted to build in as a buffer. And, and now you're going to be paying rent on a space that is not open for business yet, which is a big taboo in our world, right? Sure, sure. And, and that's exactly right. It, it's it, If you are denied the permits altogether or the zoning is denied, that's obviously a nightmare scenario. But, but the way it usually plays out when there's a problem is delays, hearings, lawyer fees, and it's six, eight, nine, you know, 12 months of just not knowing, and you've lost all of your free rent. Now you're in a position where you don't have the the capital to pay your rent, to pay your staff, and you're struggling. Right. And that's a bad way to start. And I think, you know, let's just go back, you know, like I I am a huge proponent of startup practices. uh, And people say, oh, should I buy a practice or a startup or a startup's risky? this is really the the answer to that question is if you do a startup right, then you can put yourself in position to succeed. And that goes to who you hire, your team, and doing all the right things and making sure you have experienced people surrounding you to look out for these things. These are the the bogeys, so to speak, that could come up and sink your startup, right? Or certainly put you in in jeopardy before you even opened your door. And they are in t- Entirely avoidable, right? I mean, yep. It's 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 the landmines are all within the the you know three three months after you start this process to the first say six months after your doors are open, where you're making all your big decisions. You know, uh, vendor contracts. You know, and as obviously with with the zoning and the building permits. And so, if you can just get over those humps, it's there's still problems that you're going to have to solve. You got to build your business, but there's the variables involved in in making the whole thing work. They get solved one by one, and and that problem becomes a lot easier to focus on. Yeah, yeah, and but they do. It does become like a simple thing too. So as you're saying it too, it's like I'm thinking about if you don't know when that's going to when the construction period is going to begin, you don't know when the permits are going to be issued. That means you don't know when to order your equipment. And so like there's a lead time with that. Like you just throw off the whole thing, you know, for for no reason. The other thing too that not not quite as crucial as to whether or not you can or can't operate your business here or the permission you need to get is that in in the in the vet world there are uh, other potential issues with zoning sometimes where you'll see whether or not you can you can have uh, overnight boarding there and what that means for retaining your surgery patients overnight uh, you know, and other business issues that the zoning kind of gets into. And so sure. if the vision for your practice is that, yes, this is our business model is this is what we want, but then the zoning code doesn't allow that model there, then, you know, then that's not the right place for you, perhaps. And you have to find some other place right. where you can you know, really imprint your, the vision that you want for your practice. Um, and again, that's something you want to know before you sign the lease, because again, folks, you know, hear me again, right? Once you've signed the lease, their chances are you're not getting out of that and you can't go back. You can't give a lease back. Can't say that, well, I, I, I thought it was going to be different to be able to do different things here that now I find I'm restricted or either entirely or in whole or in part. Now you're going to have to try to make things work. And again, now we're reverse engineering something that was supposed to be this awesome thing that you're going to be able to go out and imprint your vision and do what you wanted to do. And now you've tied a hand behind your back for no good reason sure sure so it's just just one example of that uh in terms of how absurd this can be i had a client who was going to be leasing space in a retail center we found a great space right size great parking the landlord was tremendous we were getting a long free rent period a lot of tenant improvement allowance all the things that you want from uh from a landlord we went to the town and we said are we zoned for is our is our use approved here? Yes, by right. Here's the zoning approval letter. As we were getting closer to signing the lease, we dug into some of the local code a little bit f- deeper just to be 100% certain. And we actually found that a veterinary practice can't be within 100 feet of a restaurant in that municipality. Wow. We were 90 feet away from a pizza slice, right. you know, three doors down. But because we were within that 100 feet, 
we weren't going to be able to go there. So even though we had a use approval letter, hmm. there was this other, you know, issue that was not going wow. to be found until we went to apply for our permits. So my doc almost signed a lease. Huh. So it's it's not just a matter of can I go here or not. There are uh, arbitrary rules that can exist out there for vets. They they, they they're antiquated. Most of mm-hmm. them are gone, but you have mm-hmm. to make sure that that you are uh, accounting for some of these 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 old rules and regulations that haven't uh, fallen off the the code yet. And none of them are, are intuitive. You know, like it's not like you—you you would never think that that's a thing. I still so don't know like, why. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you. Like, I'm—I'm I'm, I'm trying to brainstorm like why that could be. Like, it doesn't—it doesn't make any sense, right? You but, know, it's not a—it's not a smell because we we looked into like there there weren't there weren't a different ventilation requirements. There weren't uh, sound attenuation requirements. My only thought was that it was some sort of vestige of people don't want to see animals. Um, and then be reminded of them when they're when they go to eat, you know, I, like that. It's somehow yeah. that was the yeah, only thing that, yeah. that they could come up with. You know, yeah. we we tried to figure out what the the method behind that was. Bizarre, but there's a lot of things out there like that that are just counterintuitive. So you can't just say like common sense is this should be fine, not necessarily, and that doesn't matter, right? The rules are the rules, and. Uh, it, there's a whole process if you're going to try to challenge them that can be a, a, a risky proposition. Sure. If anybody had any ideas on what that was, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear them. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Uh, we're we're going to wrap it up now, uh, Pete. But before we do, just kind of like, you know, as we, one in closing, what is like, what's a piece of advice that you would give to a veterinarian considering a startup? So if anybody's listening right now, like what what is what's sort of like the message that you would want to give give that person if they're thinking, eh, you know, I'm thinking about it. Should I do it? I'm not sure. Is it risky? People told me that it can be it could be hard to do. It. It's hard to make money. Like what like what would you say to to somebody that's not necessarily in the fence, but maybe early stages of considering doing this? That you know, some of the wisdom that you have that you would impart on them. Sure. So so the. The most important thing to keep in mind is this this is your time, right? There, there's a shortage of vets. There's all of this chaos in the vet consolidation world going on. More people own pets than ever before. There's a reason why the lenders want to give zero interest or low interest, uh, sometimes 0% down, you know, don't, you are the opportunity. Uh, and, and this is your time. If you ever thought about owning a practice, uh, there are risks associated with this, of course, and it will cost, uh, you'll have to sign a lot of documents. Uh, you're going to have to give up a lot of your time, but the, the risks associated with making this work, if you have the right team, are are minimal. And that should give docs that are thinking about this a lot of confidence that, yes, you have to be serious about this. You have to give it a lot of time and energy. You got to build the right team. But if you do things the right way, there's a lot of different ways this can be successful. There's a lot of different ways that you can grow. Uh, and even if your choice is, is not to grow down the line, there's ways to make a small practice successful as well. So uh, don't lose don't lose your your um, don't lose focus of the fact that that this is a chance. Uh, you know, for whatever your motivation was going to veterinary school, most docs it was not necessarily to go into business. Uh, but this is a rare opportunity that's been afforded to you. And sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time. And so uh, don't, don't worry any more than you need to uh, about the risk associated uh, with the venture itself. There's, there's plenty of other wearing to, to be done you know, along the way. <laughs> Right. Just to take the leap. And I, I feel like it's, you know, for people like, and just tag on that, you know, it was just learn, learn about it, you know, you know inquire, get information, you know, start the process. And I think as you move through it, 
you'll get more comfortable with, with comfortable, the decision you're it's making. It's exciting. It's yeah. empowering. And, you know, it's, it's the path uh, towards, you know, being able to control your, your, your family's financial trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's awesome advice. And I, you know, I will say to, to my listeners, I did my startup professional practice 28 years ago. And it's one of the great things of being a professional and owning your practice is that you get to imprint your vision, how you want to practice, where you want to practice, the type of practice that you want to have, the type of animals that you treat, uh, the people that work on your team in the office, how you want your office to look. This is, you know, the, to have that that sort of freedom and flexibility to do that is one of the greatest things about being a professional. And, you know, obviously the actual practice of the profession and, 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 and treating your patients is awesome, but being able to do it the way you want, where and when and how and with whom is just an awesome thing. And as you said, the time is now, you know, and I think I, it's really important for more people to realize that there are alternatives to practice ownership. You know, don't fall in love with this, hey, I'm going to have to buy a practice because if I don't, then it's really risky to do something as a startup without existing cash flow and, and patience. Well, you know, not necessarily. You know, there is another opportunity and an alternative here that, as you said, Pete, with the time is now. It's the perfect time and the opportunity is there. And it's something that people should really consider. Couldn't agree more. So, um, Pete, it's been awesome having you uh, today. Thanks for taking the time. Sure. It's always fun to wrap with you about the industry yeah. and business. Um, if folks want to get in touch with you and learn more about what you do, uh, how would they do that? So uh, I think I, uh, you could probably get a hold of me by way of the show notes here, right? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Whatever you tell me now is going to be in the show notes, but okay. you know, as far as uh, you know, email and you know, uh, best way to reach you. Sure. So email is Peter McCann M C C A N N at car dot uh, You know, call me, text me. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. You know, I'm on the car website. There's there's a lot of different ways to to find me. Um, and I encourage you, whether you're in Philadelphia region, you're in Jersey, New York, or if you're in California, you know, and you don't necessarily know uh, who you want to reach out to first, I'm, I'm more than willing to take your call and, and give you an idea of, you know, if there's a car agent that's in your territory or, you know, if there are uh, attorneys like yourself that might be able to, you know, put them in touch with some of the local mm -hmm. folks, uh, it's you know, don't feel this needs to be uh, geographically re restricted. We, we all work together and, and try to point you on the right path. That's awesome. And then you specifically, again, Pete, what, what territory do you generally cover for? So the mid-Atlantic, okay. right? So most of my projects are in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Okay, great. Awesome. Well, thanks for taking the time, Pete. Course, it's great Rob, having great you. Great to see you. It's good to see you too. Thanks for listening to another great podcast with attorney Rob Montgomery. And don't forget to tune in next time to have the process of starting up a veterinary practice demystified. For more information about today's podcast or to contact Rob's firm, go to www.yourvetlawyer.com.